Today's episode is called Museum Stories, and I will be doing this one solo. Museums have played a very important part in my life, uh, the foundations, and, and even in my faith walk. And so today, I just want to tell you some stories about my experiences in museums. It probably started off most like everyone else where on a field trip uh, you go to like the natural history museums and my earliest memories of being in a museum uh, was the you know the, the natural history museums where you know there's taxidermied animals and some cavemen and it's really bad and really <laughs> poorly done but they make you go on this field trip anyway I, I vividly remember La Brea Tar Pits as a kid, and just how fascinating that place was. And of course, my favorite was the saber-toothed tiger. Dire Wolves was a close second. And I just remember everything about it. I remember, you know, I remember how poorly some things were done, some of the exhibits were done. Uh, I remember the feel. I remember the smell. And I know, I know I know this because uh, my later days as an adult, I returned back to the, the La Brea Tar Pits. And it's like I smelled that same exact smell. And it, it, it brought back all of these childhood memories. So museums were a, were a big part um, growing up. My parents also had this affinity for the arts. And so... When we could, we did, we, we would go to the museums. As a very young boy, um, I was around seven, my parents were starving to death, basically, in ministry. So they, it was, uh, they had to have a side hustle, and uh, one of their side hustles was uh, refinishing, restoring antiques and, and jaguars. Uh, my dad was good at restoring jaguar XKEs. Uh, but as a boy, seven years old, uh, I don't know what they were thinking, but they had a, they saved up enough money to fly out to Maine, from California to Maine, and they bought a pickup, they bought a trailer, and then we drove up and down the eastern coast and then back across of America uh, buying antique furniture, which we refinished in California and they they uh, they that's what we lived off of for a year but while we were on the East Coast of course we visited the historical sites and we visited the Smithsonian and as a young boy that just changes things this that that wonder of being in that setting in a, in a museum setting now you know going on the field trip for a lot of kids you know, if it doesn't involve spacecrafts and, you know, cool stuff like that, it can get a little boring, right? Uh, art galleries, uh, portrait galleries for a young boy, they can, you know, it's like, ah, okay, so there's a, there's a painting of some flowers. It doesn't really mean anything unless it, unless it blows up. Now, I can't remember exactly what age I was, but I, I know it was around junior high uh, age, but we went to the Norton Simon and I would say the Norton Simon in Pasadena is my first love. 
It is there that I saw my first Van Gogh. It is there where I saw they have a great Rodin. Uh, they had some the dancers from uh, Rene Descartes. Oh, that's a philosopher. Um, uh, Renoir, um, and I just I, I, that did it for me. Norton Simon got me hooked into the the power of the visual arts, and specifically in in paintings. And and once again. I don't know what it is, but there was, and still is, uh, a vibe and a smell to the Norton Simon. And, you know, I loved it. I, I became curious about art from that museum. Very impactful for me. The next big one is a museum and an art piece and a historical monument all in one piece and that is the Getty Villa in Malibu. Now, if you haven't been to the Getty Villa in Malibu, like this is, this is, this is a no-brainer. So, not only is it one of the best museums in the world highlighting ancient art, it is an actual Italian, or yeah, Italian villa uh, from probably, I think, around the third century, second to third century AD. J. Paul Getty, he was the, not a very nice man, but obviously a very rich man. And he bought all of these works of art to fill that museum. And he literally bought the villa in Italy and transported it back to California, brick by brick. So you can actually go into a, in, into a historical villa. It's just incredible. So everybody's got to go to the, the Getty Villa in addition to the new Getty. Now, for those of you that might be watching, like I don't know how many guys will listen or watch, but I have a huge dating hack for any young person, specifically guys, that want to impress their date. Like if you want to score a 10 on a date, you need to do what Pastor Josh did. And you take your date to the Getty, the Getty Villa. Um, in fact, we'll just, we'll just camp out right here. If you, all, if you want a good date, and if you want to date somebody that's, that's worth dating, take them to a museum. You just might, you just might, find your future soulmate. And that's, and that's what I did. We'll get to that point in a minute. But Getty, um, and the new Getty is completely opposite of the villa. The new Getty is modern architecture. They've got, you know, of course, some of the best work all from all over the world. And one of the most architecturally stunning pieces of work that you could ever find yourselves in. So Getty's a big deal, even though in real life, this guy was a major jerk. Getty. All right. Those were my high school years, and they were, again, I, they were important for me to begin to develop a love for art. And then I had the privilege, uh, after graduation, uh, I had the privilege of seeing some of the world museums. Let me backtrack a little bit to 
Um, not only did I get to, to travel a little bit as a young man, I also got to travel a bit as, as a boy. Um, there is, of course, our incredible museums that highlight Western civilization, you know, like, like the Getty or the Norton Simon or the Met, um, the Smithsonian, like, like it is a huge monument to Western civilization. And I didn't realize that there was another world beyond our own. At the age of 10, my parents, uh, we, we smuggled Bibles into China. And uh, that might be a conversation for another day. And it was very exciting for a young boy to be a smuggler. And uh, I actually got caught. And uh, again, I'll save that story for another day. But what we also did, and this is, I value this time so much because what we also did is that we got to tour some of the museums in China and some of the historical sites in China that also made a huge impact because we would see these just incredible carvings, like jade carvings of, you know, they would, they would carve a piece of jade and they would make it look like a cabbage and it would just be pure perfection. Or they would carve uh, jade or marble spheres and they would make spheres inside of spheres inside of spheres where they would all spin around. And, and then, you know, in this studio, we, I have a couple of uh, reproductions. I have a reproduction of a tong horse and I've got, uh, here I have a Qin Dynasty horse and, and rider and probably the most valuable piece is this Cortezon uh, gal right here, and this one is a Han Dynasty. And so I got to see these things, these I bought here in California, but I got to see Asian works of art, and I remember seeing a display case, and uh, I asked the tour guide, because I was an inquisitive young boy, I asked the tour guide, how much does that work of art cost? And it was a jade spear or something like that. And he said, well, it's, it's priceless. I mean, how could that be? How could something be priceless? It's gotta be worth something. He's like, no, you don't understand. There's no amount of money that can buy that work of art. And that just, that blew my mind. I know on previous podcasts, we've talked about the valuation of certain works. We talked about the valuation of the new digital art scene, which is mind boggling at the moment. But for a young person to realize that there was an object sitting right in front of me that was considered to be priceless, like that sparked my interest. Also on this trip, I learned how to do something that um, I don't know if I should be proud of, but this is basically just who I am. Uh, on that trip, um, I learned how to interact with art, and probably not in the best of ways. And, well, there were a couple of characters on this trip that probably influenced me in, in negative ways, but there's a, there a couple of specific historical 
sites with you know temples and statues and and I saw this modeled to me and I even took part in it and from this day I still have issues with it so probably this is this is probably a little bit of more of a pastor confession time of, of what, what I've done. So this is what took place. So I remember, I have a, bit, I have a picture of this somewhere, but I remember standing in front of a, a life-size statue of Confucius. And he's got the big long Fu Manchu and the, you know, the robes and looking very regal and very royal. And these characters that we were on this missions trip with they thought it would be a great idea to put sunglasses on him and um, a fanny pack and a tourist bag and a camera. And so we literally doctored up this, <laughs> this sacred statue. Um, we thought it was great. Uh, the Chinese people that were around us that were touring, like they were laughing, but like in retrospect, we probably offended them to their very core, but they, I don't know, they. They laughed, and it was kind of hard to read if it was an awkward laugh or if they actually thought that we were funny. But I started doing this at that moment. I started interacting with artwork, maybe in an irreverent way. Irreverent way. And all right, is there something wrong with that? Uh, probably, but I, I also believe that art needs to be interacted with at certain levels. You have to have a response to it. Okay, so joking around with something sacred is probably not the best idea. But art demands a response. So put a pin in that because we'll, we'll come back to that in a bit. Later, um, back, back to college years, um, I would visit certain colleges in my area uh, I, I was even more interested while I was in junior college. I had the most amazing art history professor uh, at Chafee College. She had a love for the arts, and there's a few things that I learned from her that uh, I still apply today. One of them was her conviction and desire for freedom of speech and freedom of expression, which really pushed my boundaries as a young Christian boy or Christian young man, evangelical, even though I don't really consider myself, I don't consider myself an evangelical, I consider myself a Christian, just not, I don't really like that evangelical title. Um, and probably because I think that a lot of evangelicals wouldn't like me. Anyway, what she presented that pushed on me was the value of freedom of expression. And I don't know, she pulled this off because it didn't completely offend me, but she would show works of art that would be considered to be offensive. She started off with the classics. She moved into the the Renaissance and High Renaissance and, and Modernism and, and Cubism. I mean, she just taught us the whole spectrum of all the different styles and, and expressions of art. And then she got into stuff that would be considered controversial. Now, my initial reaction was like, what? You can't, this is terrible. We can't mock Christian art or we can't mock religion at all. And 
what I learned is, is that there is a value to the freedom of speech and the freedom of expression. And you can choose to listen or not listen, watch or not watch, but censorship, in my opinion, is, is a form of evil. And so in this, I learned how to uh, even, I learned how to respect and, uh, and, and accept, not accept, but I learned how to see works of art that I might not like. I, I learned to see them from a different perspective, uh, a more objective perspective. Like, okay, so quite possibly this work of art, uh, although it is not aesthetically pleasing, it is maybe saying something. And I do think that we can take political art and social justice art too, too far where it's like, okay, that's really annoying. No one, this isn't, this isn't fun. But there is a place for freedom of expression. I learned that in that class. After Chafee College, I went to Westmont and then touring museums in that area and I fell in love with the little gallery in Santa Barbara called the Carpalus Manuscript Library, where I eventually applied uh, as an intern. And at Carpalus, um, it was very quaint. It is, most people have never heard of the Carpalus Museums. I believe there's seven to eight museums across the nation. They're very small, they're very low budget, uh, but the Carpalus is own the largest private collection of historical documents uh, probably in the world. And so it was such a treasure to be in that mom and pop style of museum. And it wasn't visual arts, it was historical documents. And so I was able to see the written word in a different light. I was able to see that the written word was just as valuable in artistic, in expression, even from handwriting, the cross-stitching in handwriting, the, the John Hancocks and the cuneiform scripts. They're just all beautiful. And so I, I learned an appreciation for manuscripts, handwritten language. The, the Latin word manu is hand and script is right. And so I just was so fascinated with this art form of historical documents. One funny story, as I was interning there and uh, I, I kind of rose up in the, in the ranks a little bit and curated uh, that museum for a little while. And as I was, um, doing my, my desk time in the gallery. And it was an exhibit gallery, so people, it was open to the public, it was free, still is. And uh, it's a educational-based uh, display museum. And once my, my family came to visit, and uh, my, my sister, she was probably, she was probably seven to eight while I was in college. So there's, um, there's 18 years between my sister and myself. And so my parents basically have two only children. So they came to visit. And what my, 
what my parents did is they just um, they just dropped my sister off in the museum while I was uh, while I was doing my time there. While I was on the clock, they they said, "Oh, Josh, just just watch watch your sister." So they had a built-in babysitter as they went and they toured Santa Barbara. So they left my sister and me in the museum, and then there was this. Um, um, seniors club that was touring the museum so I don't know if a bus brought them in but basically the museum was full with a bunch of old people and I had to go to the bathroom so I look over to my sister it's like Alex I gotta go to the bathroom you stay in this seat you do not get up you do not touch anything you do not you know don't get up you cannot you know I'll get in trouble if you're wandering around all by yourself. I won't get in trouble by mom and dad, I'll get in trouble by my boss. Go to the bathroom. Um, as I'm coming out of the bathroom, my sister is hiding behind the door. And we had this, this little game that we would scare each other. And she's like, boo! And she scares me in the museum. And I screamed like a woman. I, I mean, just like freaked out. And like this is a very quiet setting, you know. They're they're playing classical music, and it's just, everybody's whispering because it's a library. And here I am. I'm, I just I scream, and my 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 sister is just losing it. She's like laughing her head off. And I look to my right, and there's this old lady, and she puts her hand on her chest, on her heart, and and she's just like like can't breathe and she falls back against the wall and I'm like oh my god and so luckily I mean she came through like we didn't have to call the ambulance but yeah I almost killed somebody in a museum so that's that's one of my fun museum stories uh, I did quite a bit of time there and then my boss Mr. Karpolis uh, after graduation said um, so you really enjoy being in the museum I'm like I do I love it here and he's like well, do you want your own museum? If I want another one, and if you go find me one that's, that's, that meets these criteria, um, well, I'll let you start it. And so I got to, I, I found this museum in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, after graduation, one of the first things that I did is I drove across the nation and uh, uh, set up shop and took this really cool old church and made it into a museum. And that in and of itself was obviously a great experience. As a boy from Los Angeles, California, uh, moving to the South was a very strange cultural shock. I did not realize that America was divided into two different countries because that's exactly what it felt like. I mean, we spoke the same language, uh, we used the same currency, but I figured out that this is a different land, at least it was back then. And it took me a little while to navigate the social dynamics of the Old South, but I did, I enjoyed it. I never fit in. Um, with a few exceptions of kind people, but it was really hard for me to just stay connected there. I, unabouts to me, I didn't realize that um, the museum was in a black neighborhood. I was actually living in the basement of this museum, and 
I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to do that. Uh, I wasn't supposed to live in a black neighborhood. The, the black African community, they didn't know what to do with me. Eventually they just felt sorry for me and they invited me to their homes and they're very sweet. And um, one night, uh, one evening, I should say, there was uh, some kids that were visiting me and uh, we were we were in the the sanctuary of this building, or the you know the church um, of the museum, and we had uh, the spotlights on, and I think we were playing a video game or something like that. And out of the corner of, of our eyes, we see something cross one of the beams of the spotlights, and. Like what's that? It's like I don't know what's that. And well, there's a big giant bat inside the museum. And I mean, obviously by now you know that I'm a little jumpy, and so I start freaking out. And then these these black kids start freaking out, and we're like, we've got to catch this bat. And so we're chasing it around, kind of freaking out. And well, finally, we were able to get a bucket. We captured one, captured this bat, and uh, me and this other kid were had this debate about who's going to pick up the bucket, so the other one could hit this bat with the broom. And uh, so I lost the conversation, and I, I picked up the bat, and the kid's trying to hit the bat. The bat's crawling on me. He's hitting me with the bat. It's just, it's a great story. Uh, it was a, it was a fascinating time. It was also a lonely time, but even though I, I did make some connections there, uh, it, it was difficult. And probably one of the things that um, hit me about the black community and one of the reasons why they felt so sorry for me is because um, they felt sorry for me because I was living in the church and uh, they, they believed that it was haunted and it had ghosts and spooks because um, dead people had been in there were for funerals and stuff. So thank you for listening to Museum Stories Part 1. I got to go to a Part 2 and we'll see you next time on the Art of Faith podcast. Thanks a lot.